Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, and science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach, and then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded live in the presence of an online audience, so you can join in and ask questions or just participate in the discussion. This week, we're going to pick up where we left off last week with testing considerations for cyclists. Jason has been leading this one, and we're going to get right into it this week with test selection. Take it away. All right. So last week, the last episode was a lot of theory, and hopefully people were able to make through it to the end, and we did get into a little bit more of the philosophy and how that applied to the practical at the at the end of the last episode so hopefully that um woke people up a little bit and they could appreciate that so but this week or this episode is going to get a lot more into the uh practical side of things and like i said we'll start out with the test selection and if you remember we were working off of uh basically um the recommendations coming out of the national strength and conditioning Uh, association's textbook uh, for strength and conditioning individuals and the reason why we were looking at that is because it is a nice kind of step back look at testing and theory in terms of how it relates in many different sports and so that i think again gives us a better perspective of it as just kind of looking at it in this narrow minded um uh aspect of just maybe what's coming out of a cyclist testing manual or something like that. So to get into it, um, yeah, the whole testing and selection is, if you remember from the last episode, we were talking about what's important when evaluating tests to consider the validity and reliability of the test. And what you were looking for is both high validity and high reliability. And last week, we also mentioned that testing and data collection have costs. And these costs have to be measured against the potential benefits that you can get from the test. So when you are selecting your tests for an athlete, there should be a clear goal in mind what this test is going to tell you. And if you get this information from the athlete, how is it going to help you further their um, performance uh, and get them to their goals? So when you get into the data collection and the costs, you have to think, you know, power meter, heart rate on a bike. It's really easy to put a heart rate monitor on, but you have to maintain it. Power meters nowadays are basically pretty much put a battery in it and forget about it if you've got a good power meter. So in in that sense, you wouldn't think these would have a lot of cost to them other than just the cost of buying them, but still it costs the athlete to upload the data, make sure the data is accurate and that type of thing. So you have to always consider that. And every single time you want to take a measure from an athlete, there's going to be some kind of cost for it. So you want to make sure that what you are taking from the athlete in terms of data is going to help further them 
down the road and it isn't just there for your own pleasure of being able to have this data sitting in front of you. So you, ha you have to make sure that the data that you're collecting is in the best interest of the athlete. So with that said, do you have, have any um, points to that, Cyrus or Damien? I think you and I have different ideas of pleasure. If you just <laughs> for your pleasure is getting athlete's data in front of you. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the sports science nerdiness side of things. And this is actually kind of an interesting disconnect that came up in a review that I was reading about uh, testing uh, athletes. This is a review that was written by Mike Lambert and back in 2006. And they're really, and in like a sports team, you could really see this kind of disconnect between a coach who was working directly with the athlete and maybe a sports scientist that wants to test athletes for just to have the data and, or to test out, um, test out machines or have research results or something like that. When, yeah. when the, when the coach has the, is more thinking about the performance of that, of the athlete, the you could have it where some sports scientists out there are more into just the testing side of things and just having athletes in a lab. So when you are selecting tests for athletes, there's a few points to consider. And one is the metabolic energy system specificity for the tests versus the sport, the bio biomechanical movement patterns, the experience and training status of the athlete, the age and the sex of the set of the athlete that's being tested and the environmental factors that are where the test is being conducted. And I think you kind of already touched on that a little bit in the last episode, right, Cyrus? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so in terms of metabolic energy system specificity, the this is going to require a um, a pretty decent understanding of the basic energy systems but for endurance cycling the predominant energy system is going to be aerobic metabolism by a long shot would you guys agree <laughs> definitely but that doesn't necessarily say it will be what makes or breaks the the race because you but anyways but it, so these energy systems and how they work in cycling or on any sport really are pretty Easy to understand when the systems are isolated, but when it gets into sport, it's going to get more complicated because they're working together over time. But to get back to cycling and energy systems, most of the, t the tests that are going to describe the potential of the athlete the best and measure their response to training the best are, for the majority of the time, are going to be aerobic tests of of their or test of the aerobic metabolism. Um, obviously, this is there's skills testing and types of things you could do that potentially might have high reliability and validity when it comes to cycling sport. But in terms of energy systems and and cycling uh, for endurance athletes or endurance cycling, it's going to be mostly around measuring different measures of the aerobic metabolism. So, the O2 max testing tests of threshold, that type of thing. And then the other thing to consider when 
choosing your test or deciding what test to use is the biomechanical movement pattern specificity. And for team sports or something like that, this is going to be probably more towards them, but it's also something to consider in cycling testing. So if you're working with soccer players, you'd want to test their ability to kick, right? It's going to be more, it's going to be more important to measure that than their ability to throw. Um, so, in, but in cycling, the, the movement pattern is pretty static is moving the legs around in a circular pattern, but within that, I mean, they're like, we we're just talking about aerobic tests. Um, so you could run an aerobic test on a treadmill or on a bike, but if you're working with a cyclist, it's going to be best to do it on a cycling ergometer. And also if you're going to get into the finer details of the kind of biomechanical movement patterns that are specific to cycling, then you would want to consider, you know, when I do testing in a lab for research with athletes, I actually have them bring their bike into the lab because they're not going to use, not so they can use their bike, but so that I can get the measurements off the bike and set the cycling erg up properly so that it's, um, a fit that they're familiar with because that could potentially have an effect on the test results. Um, the other thing to consider shoes for sure. If you can shoes and pedals. Yeah, yeah, yep, exactly. Shoot their own shoes, their own pedals. Um, the other thing to consider is, all right, well, if they're testing for a time trial, do we, do we keep them in an upright position or their time trial position when we're testing them? There's something to consider there too. I, I don't even, I don't have a strong opinion on either way, just more so it's something that should be considered in the individual case. Uh, another thing to be consider with the position or the, I'm sorry, the biomechanical movement pattern specificity is sprint testing. Are you doing it in the saddle, out of the saddle? Are you doing it on a stationary bike? Or are you doing it on a bike that's outside where you can shift the, the weight of the bike the center of the mass of the bike back and forth. All things to kind of consider when you're doing... Even even step testing and things like, are they allowed to sprint at the end, mm-hmm. get out of the saddle? How, what does that look like? Can they stand up halfway through a something that's going to last for 35 minutes or something? So mm-hmm. Cadence as well, I think, might come under this if during a test, like because you see I've seen uh, step tests prescribed as it, with an ergometer and it's on erg mode but once the athlete's cadence like i saw one forget where i even saw it being implemented it just said once the athlete's cadence drops below 90 then they're said to have been that that's the test done and i thought Mm. well some some people just prefer riding at 75 cadence when they're Mm -hmm. they're doing a steady effort so that's another factor yeah especially if you have a rider with like longer legs a, a, a more muscular bigger rider i've seen some guys in the lab they just they just grind yeah right? exactly so a test protocol of that uh, cadence would just automatically kind of put them that type of rider at a disadvantage yeah Are you sure it wasn't 60 because i've used 60 before um no this one was definitely 90 for mm. a step test because i remember just seeing it and thinking well that's ridiculous because like if I like me personally, I have a high cadence, but like 
I know some people would just find riding at 90 at a really comfortable power difficult because they just don't like spinning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's definitely something to find. I've, I've definitely done tests like this where cadence has been a factor that they've tried to control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, another thing to consider is the when you're trying to decide what tests you should use with athletes is the experience and training status of the athlete. So that would go into how well they would be able to prepare for the test, the pacing, how experienced are they at pacing uh, the tests and skill levels and things like that. I think last week we were talking about with our case study with the triathlete you know, I mentioned, yeah, I would really like to get a power profile with this athlete, but I would want to make sure that they knew how to sprint, right? So before I would send them out and do a, a field test uh, on, a, on a road bike. Um, the other thing to kind of consider with within this point is the um, an athlete with low training status, similar to the case study last week. So someone either after an injury or some time off the bike or something like that, you know, is this person really ready for testing in terms of maybe not so much a physiological sense, but just in a mental sense? Uh, Are they mentally prepared for this? Because in a physiological sense, you know, if you're going to go through all the trouble of testing them and they're on a build and, you know, they've, and they're just returning to a fitness that they had not too long ago. They, they might respond really, really quickly to the training. And you might just be able to avoid that test if you can kind of finagle some things. The just other, for, the other yeah. one that's just popping out there is just making sure you're accounting for the athlete improving at the test itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yep. Yep. Because And this is why every study or every well-designed study we see mm-hmm. has a control group. Uh, because if they're doing repeat graded exercise tests, often the control group will also improve, even if mm-hmm. they're not subject to any difference in intervention or they're not changing anything about their lifestyle, they simply get better at the test. So it's an important thing to factor in with an athlete. If you give them this step test or ramp test for the first time and give it to them a week later, they're likely to get to perform better just because they're more familiar with the test. Yep, yep. And that's actually mentioned in in this uh, text by the National Strength and Conditioning Association. But it's it's a pertinent point to to mention here, Cyrus, definitely. Moving on to the other things to consider would be age and sex. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the test that you would give to a junior versus the test you would give to an adult cyclist. You know, uh, the attention span of a young cyclist is not going to be uh, as long as say an adult or uh, late teens rider. So the so that's definitely something to consider there. And also just the validity of the fact that juniors aren't doing 40 kilometer time trials or any races mm-hmm. that go for an hour or more. So especially well, the young age juniors. So yeah, w- whether it's even necessary to actually do that test. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Really good point. And then also sex differences, so male versus females. And one of the examples that came to mind for this, and in terms of field testing, I don't know if there's a whole lot of differences, but in terms of lab testing, 
I would say, yeah, because you have to, the sex differences come into play when you're considering the graded exercise test protocols and say like VO to max testing. And so with women, you would typically start them at a lower intensity, lower wattage, and then you might actually increase the steps the same or slightly less. And the reason why there is that sex difference is just because of the power differences between males and females. And it's important when you do a steps test that the athlete hits exertional failure within a certain window of time. Because if they get too far out, then they might have depleted glycogen stores and they might not reach uh, a proper VO2 max. And if it if they reach failure too soon, they might not reach a proper VO2 max. So this is why, you know, generally speaking, they would see differences in the graded exercise tests for males and females. Uh, and last thing to consider, the consideration that I hate the most uh, is the environmental factors. Oh, come on. There wasn't even a chuckle on that, guys. Come uh, on. Uh, I was, I was... <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Jason. <laughs> uh, okay. Where are you going to go there? <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, so yes, things to consider with environmental factors and testing would be if you're indoors, you know, you hope things would be around that room temperature or cooler. If you can get it there, you just want to make sure it's consistent. But outdoors, when you're field testing, this the weather might not agree with you. So there's things to consider here would be uh, high environmental temperature, high humidity, low convection, um, hypoxia, uh, especially with altitude, anything, any kind of altitude that's over 580 meters. All of these things can negatively affect physiological responses and the subsequent power output that the cyclist is um, performing in the test. So I guess I put a little asterisk here about low convection, some low convection. What does that mean? And why does that matter? So if you think about it, uh, cyclists for the most part are moving pretty fast. It's like an unnatural speed for humans to be exercising at, and that allows a lot of convection. So there's not only kind of with cycling, the advantage, the, the mechanical advantage that comes from the bike. But there's also kind of a thermal regulatory advantage for the added convection that allows for additional cooling, which can lead to a better performance. And so you might, if you, the, the one disadvantage of doing it in a lab, if you ha don't have a proper fan, is that you can get this kind of uh, thermal stress on the body, which could be detrimental to performance. So it's something to definitely consider is how much wind you have. Um, and this could actually be maybe a factor as well. If you're doing your test on a really steep hill, you know, steep hill, hot day, high humidity, you're basically just sitting in your own kind of heat bubble at that point. Um, but conversely, something else to consider, well, I think, I think a lot of people realize that these environmental factors can have a negative effect on their physiological responses and their power output. But interestingly, high heat and being at altitude means there's a decrease in air density, which means no, air density, not error. <laughs> <laughs> there's a decrease in air density 
and less air resistance, which means less friction, more speed. So yeah, I, that actually, I think they took that into consideration when they did the woman's hour record, if I'm not mistaken. You guys know about that in the US? They, uh, heat, they heated up the- specifically, but the- Yeah, they he heated up the velodrome. Ah, uh, yeah. No, that's huh. pretty common as well there. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll try and heat up velodromes in like Europe over winter when there's track season, they'll, they'll have the, the heaters cranked up. Mm -hmm. There are the, reason. yep, and Eddie Merckx did his uh, famous hour record and I think Mexico City, yeah, so at, at altitude. Yeah, well, that was where uh, Aguas Calientes, where Ashton Lambie just broke the the 4K record as well at altitude there. Yep, nice, nice. And yeah, and then you have to consider with hypoxia or that anything over 580 meters is going to have declines. So the number that I have here for that is, you know, there's a 5% decline in performance for every 910 meters of increase. Which is interesting because the AIS is in Canberra and Canberra is around 600 meters. I mean, that just definitely affected your... Um, your chances of going pro, Damien, was all the testing you did there, and it just artificially was lower. But you guys had exactly. But you had Chris Gore there. Chris Gore is like Mr. Altitude, so I'm sure like he had a correction factor on all the tests, on all the spreadsheets there for sure. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, maybe that wasn't as funny as I thought it was. <laughs> Canberra's nice Thanks, and Dr. Jason. Canberra's nice and cold always. There, so you'd be you wouldn't have to worry about the heat at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Some more practical stuff. Next big heading here on this discussion about testing of cyclists is the actual test administration and what happens during, during the administration of the test and the factors that you have to take into consideration. And the number one most important thing is going to be health and safety. So, this has to be a primary concern when working with an athlete because if your athlete is injured and not healthy, they are not going to perform. Going into the test, how healthy is it as the athlete? Are they sick? Are they injured? Um, what are the weather conditions? Field testing. Are you going to do outside? Is it, is, it the first, is it the first rain of the year and you're in Perth and the roads are slippery as shit? <laughs> then maybe it's not a good... A safe environment to hold a 20-minute test or sprint tests in, right? So things to consider um, with health. Uh, another thing is, is these, for the most part, are going to be tests at maximal exertion. And this is going to affect how the athlete's brain is operating. And this is going to affect the athlete's perception of reality and time and their overall mental state, so and their reaction times. So that's another thing to kind of consider. So for you know the for Damien and all of us here as coaches with athletes that are performing field tests, we should be having that conversation of do you have a safe road to do this on? You know, not only a road that doesn't have stoplights and stop signs in it, but you know. Is there a heavy? Is this road going to have a lot of traffic? Is this road um, 
you know, have a bunch of cars parked along it where someone could just open a door in front of you. So these, these, in terms of uh, cycling, you, you, there, and and the risks that could happen from crashes, you're definitely going to want to have a conversation and consider safety uh, measures within the test administration. I don't know if you guys have any additional thoughts about that. No, it's pretty straightforward, and mm-hmm. I think well, it's important to note it's at the top of the list when you're doing this like that you you do even though it's a obvious one does have to come first yep yep um the next bit to consider when administering tests is is the selection of the and the training of the tester themselves so if the athletes you know, if you're coaching them online and they're doing the test by themselves out on, out on a road, there isn't necessarily a tester, but there is. Well, yeah. that's where I, mm-hmm. I think that the athlete becomes the tester. Yep. I think that's a good point. Yeah. So yeah. Yep. they're the one that you have to lean on to understand a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. f- for themselves and for you. Yeah. 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 And, and so, yeah, because it's even, I think even when you have athletes that are in the same city as you, you can't be there for all their tests. That's just not logistically possible at some point. I've done it remotely. Mm-hmm. I've done it like with Skype mm-hmm. and a video. Mm-hmm. Um, that's as close as I've got generally. Mm. That sounds hot. <laughs> it's very personal. Oh, yes. I was talking about temperature. But... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, trolled you. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, so this gets into just my experience in working in a lab pretty quickly. If you're testing someone in a lab, you should really be thinking about like this is a (laughs) this is a cherished uh, experience that you are having here. This is something that is a lot of people would like to be doing this. So the tester should be focused on the athlete. They should be encouraging the athlete. They should be a good reference for the athlete. They should have a knowledge of what the test is. They should be able to convey the importance of the test and the protocol of the test to the athlete uh, effectively. Control control the energy of the room, I think, is important. Yeah. I think it sets yeah. the stage for what the result will be if the energy is yep. positive and people are willing to cheer you on even though you think that it's a low number Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i have it in here somewhere but uh yeah man if you're in an athlete uh, if you're in a testing session with an athlete and i can't say i've never done this but don't pull your phone out don't pull your phone out don't get on your laptop if you're the tester you're there with the athlete they're there they're your focus you're you're either looking at them or the data that's showing up on the, on the screen in front of you. And this is where I'm almost like, if you need your phone for like stopwatches or anything like that, just get a stopwatch. Just stay away from, you know, if, it, if you're using it for reference material or anything like that, like just try to get some other way to get that material in front of you as opposed to your phone. Because... Even if you're on looking, all you're looking at the phone for is things that is in context of the test. 
it just doesn't, I just don't think it's a, sends a very professional uh, message to the, to the athlete. And this being said, I'm not going to say I've never looked at my phone during a test. I'm just getting on, on my, on my soapbox right now and hopefully conveying that little bit of professionalism to all the, all the people out there that might be testing individuals in the future. I got a, uh, yeah. a random question. Yeah. Um, cheerleading. Yeah, that's a good one. Is it something that is uh, encouraged? Like it's something that's calculated when setting up a test in a study or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it something, yeah, that you may not do sometimes? Like every test I've done in a lab, I've had the people, you know, screaming at me, finish strong, all you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought about, is that standard practice? Because it doesn't feel like it's very specific to being in a race because you're the one mm-hmm. <laughs> doing the work. And Well, yeah, I, like I almost that, feel, you know, Cyrus, you were talking about how you got these massive numbers over this last race that you were in, right? And yeah. I was thinking about that in the context of this uh, conversation. And I was remembering, you know, there was races that I was in that I saw my best five minutes ever, like higher than testing numbers, right? And I've seen normalized powers that were higher than numbers ever been tested at, um, like 20 minute normalized powers that were in group rides, right? So you know, obviously you have to consider in normalized power and how it's calculated and all that type of thing. But I almost kind of think, Damien, that the verbal encouragement kind of almost makes up for what's doesn't isn't there or what's lacking that you would have in a race scenario so but mm-hmm. you bring up a good point about standardizing that and that's really hard not to to do i mean and if, if i was going to publish something and i would put you know verbal encouragement in it the I doubt I'm going to have any reviewer come back and say, well, how did you measure that? How did you make that was consistent? Make sure that was consistent. Although you can, if you are kind of giving the same protocol over and over, you can start mentally developing a cheer model in your, in your mind of like, okay, three minutes out, I do this much cheering. One minute out, I'm doing this much. 30 seconds, I'm going crazy. Right. But the other the other thing is as a tester, if you're doing a time to exhaustion test or a graded exercise test, you don't know how long they've got left. So you can get cheer fatigue as well if someone's way overperforming. I guess if you've uh, tested them before you have a rough idea, but Well, I guess you can probably no nah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the cri- the criterion for have you reached VO two max yet, right? So if you're doing any kind of RPE scale or anything like that yeah. within the test, yeah. then um, the other thing is getting back into severe domain. What happens in the severe domain? Well, the there's a lot of physiological characteristics that are just 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 starting to go through the roof on you, yeah. and so after a while, of, after you administer a test for a while, you can you can kind of have this sense of when failure is looming. Yeah. Um, but on the inverse of that, man, it used to drive, it just, you know, almost when you have that sixth sense about something and then it doesn't come, like when you have people that quit 
and you're like, hold on, hold yeah, yeah, on, yeah. no way. And and then it puts you in a really weird spot because it gets gets back into that your role as a tester and assisting the athlete, and then also being this person that's scientifically minded, and you're like, hold on, um, that test was bullshit. But you don't say that to the athlete, right? Because and again, coming back to this this selection of the tester comes down to the, the rapport that they have with the athlete. There's just yeah. certain things in Australia there's a lot of banter and there's a lot of sarcasm and there's a lot of shit talking, but you have to be careful about how you do that with when you're testing an athlete. You're like, oh, mate, you're not going to do, you're not going to do shit today. Well, that might've been funny before a race. That might've been funny any other time. But man, that might've not been the right time when they're nervous about a test, right? So yeah, your your rapport and how you conduct yourself yeah. around an athlete, if you are testing them, is important. And I might be one. You know, I'm I'm not super professional, but I when it comes to testing athletes, is something I put that hat on. And you know, sometimes I might get if we're in a training study and things are a little bit more laid back. Yeah, we'll 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 um, sit back and BS a little bit. But when it's testing day. It should be, everyone should be pretty serious and that gets into the cost of it and not wanting to retest and all that. And that's a conversation that comes up here down the road. It does seem like there's a, a stark contrast between lab tests and then just a test at home on your own on the trainer. Mm-hmm. Like there's two very different things mm-hmm. because if you're testing on your own, yeah, the environment, just the, the encouragement. Mm-hmm music, whatever, like it can be very, very different. So these things stand out to me as being Mm -hmm. totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something to to consider too, is that sometimes you're going to be able to get the athlete to the lab to do that testing session and it's going to, and it's going to be a a great experience for them. And hopefully everything's going to be very accurate. And then sometimes you need to test and you, they're, you know, stuck in an apartment on a trainer. With a, with a window open to help cool them off. And if if the results aren't what you necessarily would expect to see, um, again, it comes back to that conversation that we had in the last episode about um, how, how important uh, or the story is over the individual test, the, the, the overarching story and what all the other evidence is saying for the athlete. So, but another thing to consider when you're administering tests is data collection. So this gets into the accuracy of the devices, calibration and zeroing of the devices, which I should probably mention really quick here with the, when we say, when you're quote unquote calibrating your, your cork maybe by pedaling backwards. It's not really calibrating. That's more like zero zeroing. That's like when you zero your, it's zero your scale when you just push the button and it makes makes it read zero as opposed to if you're going to do a calibration, that means you're putting weights on the scale. So same thing here, but for some reason we call it calibrating. So make sure that you, your device is calibrated and that you zero it before the test. 
And then also you want to make sure that the if you're using forms or data collection like in a lab setting that those those forms are standardized and you have spaces for all of the data that you would need to write down and enter for for the athlete over the course of the test if you're looking at rpe or uh blood lactate levels you know you know i used to collect things on a spreadsheet but i would also have them i would also have a form set up that I would be writing all everything down. And this gets into an important uh, idea with testing is data redundancy. And so because the, the tests are important, you want to make sure that you have multiple copies of the data. So this is pretty easy if the only data that's coming out of the test is what's on a Garmin. Um, but if you're writing things down, you know, I used to take pictures of the forms and store them, uh, on, in a, in a folder and used to take files and make multiple copies of them, uh, or test files that come off of great exercise tests and things like that. So you don't want, these are once in a lifetime occurrences and you want to make sure that you don't lose them. And and this also means if you are doing some kind of fancy manipulation of the data on a spreadsheet or something like that, you want to make sure you're manipulating the data on a copy of it in a spreadsheet or uh, Excel sheet that is not the original data, which, again, is kind of removed from the uh, maybe a lot of coaches nowadays with the with, with training peaks and WKO5, but it's something that, again, where the, the lab and maybe the more and the strength and conditioning professional uh, world is slightly different, but we can still learn something from that world because, you know, you might be exposed to it at, at some point in time. So I don't know if you guys had any ideas for uh, any comments about data collection. Uh, nope, nothing extra on that. <laughs> nope. Continue, Jason. Take us on this journey through test administration. Um, yeah, so the other part, the other thing to consider is just a test format. Um, again, professionalism, making sure that the testing session is well organized. This can be said for um, even if you're setting up sessions in your um, Training Peaks account and it's I know it's electronic, just make sure that the description of what needs to happen is clear. Um, this is something that I was thinking about this. I was like, oh, I should go back and do this. You know, maybe you would even have a protocol set up for how the athlete should come prepare themselves for the test so that you can have, at least they would have that idea and hopefully it would be some kind of uniformity between testing sessions um, that you can supply to the athlete if you're testing them in say an online situation. The other thing to consider with testing administration is basically the testing batteries, uh, and multiple testing sessions. And then the sequence of this test. And we talked a little bit about that. Yeah, this is, this is one, uh, a topic, just the sequence of tests that I often have to think about because with each new athlete, obviously there's, uh, you want to get some some testing done, and that's predominantly something that happens with most athletes, especially if they haven't worked with a coach before and haven't got any recent tests. And you have to sort of be thinking about which order to do those in. 
um, I'll let you let you outline it here, and then I've I've got some questions on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what you want to make sure is if you are administering tests, a testing session that has multiple tests in it, because um, that might be just the best way to do it. You, you want to make sure that you are allowing a sufficient amount of recovery between the tests and in order to prevent fatigue. And you want to prevent fatigue because there's always the possibility, the high likelihood that fatigue will confound your test results and you have probably have a negative outcome. Um, and then the other thing to consider is conducting tests in a proper sequence will also help reduce the effects of the sessional fatigue on the later tests and the, the testing battery. And we talked about this where, you know, you'd want to do your consultation with the athlete first, and then you would do anthropometry, which would mean weight, test, checking height, doing a uh, body composition. So you don't want them exercising before you would do that type of testing. Then next, you would look at flexibility. Again, this is, you know, you might never look at flexibility with a cyclist. Um, but if you were going to do flexibility, you would do it after the anthropometry. Um, but we're talking on the same day this mm-hmm. is. Yeah, yeah. And then the next thing would be uh, muscular strength. And then you and then when you get into endurance type stuff, um, then I would start be looking at the lengths of the exercise so you know very short exercise is going to have different uh, bioenergetic energy costs and they are going to deplete in the athlete different so this is why i would do a five second sprint before i would do a uh, five minute all out or a 20 minute test and this is how I think um, things are prescribed in the Sufferfest, if I'm not mistaken. So, yes, the order of the power test is important, and this is why you'll see um, tests set up that way. Although I've seen tests set up differently, but there is a test that looks at you know abil- sprint ability after stochastic stochastic exercise so you would do the stochastic exercise and then do the sprint after that because you want to look at how your what your sprint ability is in a quasi fatigued or fatigued state yeah yeah i think so my question there was going to be just how when there are instances i'll prescribe so my just for context my things I try to get from a new athlete is a five second, a one minute, a five minute and a 20 minute. And obviously if you do all of those in the same session, whichever order, the last few are going to be a bit of a low estimate of what the athlete's actual potential is. But uh, one that's a bit more standardized now is what the Zwift testing involves and I thought seeing as we have a successful coach of an athlete in winning the Zwift Academy, uh, it's an important thing because the testing for them, they're required now to do, I forget the exact intervals, I think it's 15-second sprint, uh, a one-minute 
a four minute, a seven minute and a 12 minute or something. Maybe there's not the one minute in there. Maybe I think it's 15 second, a four, a seven and a 12, but both outside and on the trainer. Is that, does that sound familiar to you, Damien? Never heard it at all. Uh, did you? What, I thought, I thought what, they were doing just ramp tests. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, Sounds very critical power-ish to me. Yeah, maybe this testing, it might not be for the Zwift Academy, it might be for the Premier League, which is obviously Zwift has to has to test a lot of these things to make sure people aren't cheating. But these athletes are required to do, yeah, the those four tests, I think it's, yeah, 15 second, a four, a seven, and a 12, outside and inside. So it's a total of eight tests. And obviously you can't do those eight tests in the one day but you don't want to waste eight days and more with recovery in between so it is important in this case for the whoever is prescribing the testing to have that background knowledge of sports science to be able to order these in a way where you can group some together on certain days and structure it so that you can actually fit in all of this testing without sacrificing two weeks of training entirely mm-hmm. exactly uh, yeah, it, it must be for Zwift Power yeah. or one of those things to um, to make sure that the person's legit. The only little tidbit I can say from the Zwift Academy is in the finals week, the first thing they did was a ramp test. Yeah. And they actually set the FTP 20 watts lower than where we had it um, in training right. <laughs> leading up to that point. So the rest of the se- the week after that for any workouts was much lower than where, um, where he was, <laughs> um, sitting for FTP, which I thought was interesting because I, I do believe it would give you an advantage, a big advantage, Yeah, but that's irrelevant to what we're talking <laughs> about. But, um, I think it's, I do this, a similar thing. If a new athlete, um, start of the year, after a break or whatever, um, try and do some baseline tests over multiple days. Yep. And it is this thing when it's not so important, uh, so not such an important time for overall training. So you can sacrifice a bit of volume or whatever just so you get these baseline tests down. Yep. Um, because there's there's no other time that I will really do this. I have now a two-day protocol that I will roll out sort of coming towards the end um, of any type of aerobic stuff. And I'm actually putting athletes a little fatigued into that. Yeah. So I'm not freshening them up entirely. So we get a realistic number and we don't go into um, build build blocks with uh, any numbers that are just so crazy high that, the, that you're not going to hit them. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing. I'm not sure if it'll come up again, but the fact that athletes are always any test they they want to see a pb that's and that's obviously nice to see that but if that's your tapered and warmed up and perfectly prepped number that's not where you're doing your intervals so if you're using this testing which that is one of the purposes of the all this testing is to define the athlete zones and you're they're doing their best numbers in perfect conditions after they've had the perfect preparation. They're not getting many training days in similar conditions. So 
it's an important thing to either factor in if they have had that perfect build up to the test to to decide whether you're going to even bump it down a bit purely for training training purposes or whether you do as you've done there and have them come into it more like a scenario that they would come into for a standard training session anyway. Yeah, more more often than not I'm rounding down. Yeah. And rounding up. Yeah, and I think that's important that, that as a coach, it's the coach's responsibility because the athlete's always going to want to round up. If if you get someone to do a 20-minute yeah. test and they hit 397, they're going to be pretty happy to say, all right, I'm taking my 20-minute as 400 and my FTP is 380 and that's that done. <laughs> uh, whereas, yeah, as a coach, it's pretty – it is a difficult thing again to to say to the athlete, look, we're not actually going to put your FTP in as 300 because I don't think you're going to be able to ride to that in the sessions that we're doing. It's not what an athlete wants to hear, but long-term it's going to be a bit nicer for them not having to overreach in every training session. Yeah, and this is where having the story, like Jason was talking about, having the story around other factors that go into this become a, a much easier way to sell that as well. Yep. Is this a Continue bad time guys. to say is this a bad time to say I would do that completely differently? How would you do it? <laughs> uh so I, I actually do like to see I actually do put some effort into having the athlete fresh and ready. And actually the next thing we'll be talking about is preparing athletes for tests. And I hope that's probably the most important thing hopefully for the athletes that are listening to fully digest. But um, I don't know because the, the the problem is 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 that there's already a lot of going to be a lot of variability that's introduced with the tests, i.e., error. <laughs> um, and I think so. When an athlete comes into a test, it's how fatigued are there? Are they? And but. And is, I guess you could make the same argument when you say, well, how fresh is the person? But if they're not fatigued, um, I think it, it takes some of that air out of it. And so from my standpoint, I wouldn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'd be looking a little bit more at, all right, I want this test in an ideal condition. How do I build my training around it so that a test in an ideal condition doesn't, how do I say, not threaten, but, but, um, yeah. mess, mess with my, with my athlete's head in their training. Right. Yeah. And I yeah, think I see my, and, and so, so I, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it because you guys have traveled down a, this rabbit hole your way and I'm traveling down this rabbit hole my way and there's probably advantages and disadvantages to both of it and both of them and for me it like it just comes down to and we've discussed this too is putting probably a less emphasis on zones and I think there might be some day where I get back to putting more emphasis on zones when I find a better system uh, for determining training zones real time i'm not super happy with with what power offers um and maybe heart rate's a little bit better but i mean don't want to get down this too much but yeah so you guys have kind of come to your realization that way and i've come to mine this way and it gets back to that 
that thing that I was trying to express with um, Damien in the last episode, we were like, well, what's the take home here? Well, how do, how do we determine how all this theory works out? Or And it comes down to, well, does your process lead to athletes that improve? Or in, does your process improve athletes' performance? And sometimes as much as that is a logical fallacy in a sense, sometimes that's all you can really gauge success on is for your methodology is the outcome of the athletes. And you can probably artificially um, uh, overstate the ability of your methodology if you have some really successful athletes and they have really great results. Or if you start with people who are very untrained and you move them very into very successful athletes. Um, But at the end of the day, I would have my system and I have my looks at it. And some, you know, I might have, there could be, there's definitely people out there that are smarter and more versed in certain aspects of endurance training than me. I could have someone come along and after listening to the podcast and say, well, that was not really a great way to do it because this is in this. And I'd be like, oh, wow, you're really right. You're right. Right. So it gets into a little bit more of a conversation about the whole just a theory and practice behind training. But it's an interesting conversation to have nonetheless, because at the end of the day, testing has to inform your direction uh, on your training. And it would be silly to kind of like set up a scientific experiment and try to figure out which approach was better between what you guys do and what I do. Right. Yep. (laughs) Silence. All right. Well, let's break so this up. Yeah. How would you prepare your athlete for their test ideally then? Yeah. Uh, good question. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, ideally, um, I have to say, I have to say, I, I think of any of my athletes that are listening right now versus people that I've worked in the lab. Like when you work in a lab and do research, you are basically forced by an ethics committee to tell the person that's coming in everything that they needed to know about the testing session. And so that's really nice to have. But at the end of the day, I would say in my practice, it's probably not as standardized as what happens in the lab for better or for worse. And some of it's just because some things are just common sense for athletes, but sometimes it's good to go over everything because you they might not know something. So when you're preparing an athlete for a test, as we've discussed a lot in this couple episodes here, is that the preparation is important because you do not want to waste a testing session because it means a loss of time and training and it means um, a loss of time for the athlete and there might even be a monetary cost. But you have to, there's a little bit of a trade-off there so that because the test is important and you realize it's important, then there's a potential that it it's stressful for the athletes. So it's something also to consider coming into a test is that you kind of monitor their stress and that they and you have some kind of out for them and some kind of explanation of like, oh, if you don't get this nail, this test, we it's not the end of the world. So 
getting into the preparation, you know, you, the athlete should be aware of the date and hopefully the time and the purpose of the test prior to the session. That, that makes sense. You know, it's, you don't want to necessarily spring a test on an athlete because preparation for a test could be a couple days worth of work. You know, like for example, you don't necessarily want to do strenuous exercise uh, other than maybe some leg primers or whatever before a test. Um, I've had athletes do like 24 hour um, races a few days before a test or a day before a test. And you can't expect that the results of the test to be accurate when you are in that fatigue condition. You won't, because you won't be performing at your best. And so there's other things that you would want to avoid would be um, environmental stress. So you don't, wouldn't want to be sitting in a hot car before you did a performance test. You, you know, you wouldn't want to be coming into the test hungover. You wouldn't want to be, you know, you wouldn't want to two hours before the test, you wouldn't want to have like a turkey dinner or a big Thanksgiving dinner or something like that, or stuff yourself full of pizza. That's not going to be ideal. You're not going to want to be using supplements. Um, you wouldn't be wanting to use uh, non-habitual caffeine. So there's things that you're going to want to avoid before a test that would affect its potentially affect its results. And, and your athletes should be aware of that. And the coach should be trying to inform the athletes of that. Hence this podcast. <laughs> so when the athlete comes into the test, um, they should be, according to the, the guidelines here, they should be fresh, well-rested, meaning having had good sleep the nights before. So not, and not only like non-fatigued from exercise and they should be ready to perform. So that's physically and mentally. And again, this is something the coach should be helping to guide them through. And they should also, the athlete should be normally hydrated. They should have consumed the proper nutrition. And hopefully, uh, you know, the athlete, especially at the higher end of the spectrum, is probably getting to the point where they're standardizing their diet before coming into testing sessions. And also, this is getting back to a point that Cyrus brought up has brought up already for this, um, for this topic. And he brought, you brought it up when we were discussing, um, the case studies is this idea of the athlete being familiar with the test. So a lot of times when I have a new athlete that's never done a 20 minute test before, I just tell them to go out and do it. I'm like you, the only way to learn how to do this test is to do it. And I try to give them, you know, some pointers of how to pace and that type of thing. But this is the plans of mice and men. It really comes down to the athlete just having to do the test and familiarize themselves with it in order to hopefully be able to perform it better and properly in the future. Within the test, you know, the if you're with the athlete or whether it's prescribed to them online, you know, there should be instructions should be given about how the test is to be performed and its purpose. And then the amount of warm up that gets into our conversational warm up, <laughs> uh, the pacing strategy, how the test is going to be evaluated, and then then also just like other recommendations that you can give for maximizing the athlete's results. And so the the instructions should be clear and concise, and 
after the instructions are given, there should be an opportunity for the athlete to ask questions. And then the other things to consider would be the cool down. So if you're testing in a lab and you're doing a VO2 max test or something similar, and the ath- after the athlete is done with the test, they have to get up and go drive a car right away, that's probably not ideal. Like you want to have some amount of time after a maximal test where the athlete can either exercise lightly or something to return themselves to kind of a, a homeostasis. And then also we were talking about verbal encouragement. You want to make sure that you do that, but try to do it equally among your athletes. Then after the test is done, make sure that you discuss the outcomes of the test with the athlete as soon as possible. So those are the the considerations for preparing athletes for testing. I don't know if there's anything you guys wanted to add to that because we've been talking a lot about those as, as the episode has been uh, progressing, but I don't know if you guys have anything else to add to that. I just like having a conversation with the athlete saying that the there's no pressure on the number, like the number is a guide because I think a lot of people, athletes will treat it as if it's, yeah, this this huge thing and sort of touched on it there that there are the costs there, but the the test is just whatever you can do and it's mm-hmm. just showing that. So I think a lot of athletes will have this goal number in their head or this I have to be better than last time. But, the yeah, it's important just to say, right, you're just showing what you can do and making sure that if it's a maximal test that it's done maximally as well. So regardless of what the number is, because I've seen so many athletes get halfway through a test, see that the number's not where they want it to be and just pull the pin on the test. And that gives so much less information than if they just complete a Mm -hmm. test, even if they're Mm -hmm. not satisfied with the result of it. You just really want them to complete the test to the best of their ability. So I think if you can have the the conversation with the athlete before about that, then that's going to be the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Damien? Again, I think it's that thing of this is the gold standard in a lab and you're just pulling bits and pieces from, from this. Mm-hmm. And if you're the person setting the test for somebody else, just, just taking the bits that are most relevant and being very clear mm-hmm. With these parts, I think the pacing and things is important, so everybody understands how they should pace, at least in an ideal mm-hmm. scenario. Yep. So then they can they can measure their effort against that, mm-hmm. and then you just work with with that, work with the results, um, not just the end result, but work with how the test went, and then kind of try and get better that way. But uh, yeah, all these things are are very good in an ideal world. We discussed differences between all of us, how we would prepare athletes differently. But I think you can, this is just the framework that you start with Mm -hmm. and work from there. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'll be the first one to admit there's a lot of things that, or a number of things that you can do on some days and you can't do on others. And sometimes with some athletes, you can hit all of the marks. Other times with other athletes, you can't. And that's just how reality is. And our job as a coach and in the role of a coach, you it's basically trying to just rolling with the punches and trying to 
solve problems as you're going along the way and saying, well, this is the ideal and understanding the ideal is good. And then realizing how maybe far or close you are from the ideal and then considering that when you're looking at the results um, and using those results to guide the athlete's training. I think a big part of this is having a very good understanding of the athlete, how they respond Mm -hmm. to certain stresses, Mm -hmm. how they respond to testing in general and working within that. So instead of having the standard format of I test every whatever weeks, Mm -hmm. you know, like sometimes you need to frame it up differently. So it's not, you're not strictly doing a test, you're doing a max effort or whatever it is to kind of make sure that you're adjusting the strategy to get the best out of the athlete based on who they are and how they respond. I think that's that's the art of coaching and it's very important to to know individually um, the way that, that someone will approach this so you can then make those adjustments yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think I'll, I'll bounce it off you guys. Is this of about the test representing reality versus how the test impacts the athlete. And, you know, it's important for us to understand the reality of the situation as best as we can, right? So we, as the coach, should not be ignoring a bad test. Like we would put that into our uh, understanding of reality and how we are going to move this athlete forward. However, I kind of wonder like how much does the test really have to weigh on the athlete's reality if it's a bad test? And I kind of wonder if having the coach there can be kind of this alleviation of a bad test or like, you know what? I I will tell my athletes, don't worry about it. Because all it really matters is that I am like that I understand the reality of the situation. And if I understand the reality of the situation and I can guide them, is it re- question to you guys, is it really important to, for that, that reality to be weighing on them a hundred percent? Like they should realize that, yeah, the test was bad and yeah, they should, if there were things that were going on that should in, um, incentivize them to improve it. But if it's a bad test and we have no way to, we just can't figure out any real reason why that test has happened badly. Um, or maybe if, if the training is down and there's a bad test, I, I don't know how advantageous it is for the athlete to have that reality sitting with them. What are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, my thing, if an athlete has a bad test is to immediately just say, well, it wasn't a race. So, and mm-hmm. it's really good. That's a really good response, Cyrus. Yeah, absolutely. No one else cares. No one else even knows that you did the test. So, uh, we're not training to be good for tests. We're training to be good for races. That's the, mm-hmm. the, the conversation I will usually have with an athlete. And that's what works for me. If I, if I do a bad test, I go, well, lucky that the there's no finish lines in the laboratory is the saying that uh, we always use but yeah that's that's where i would go with an athlete if that they if they do underperform in a test yeah damien do you have thoughts 
I lean on the side of how important is the test to the athlete's confidence in their mm-hmm. performance outside of testing. Mm-hmm. Because if you have an athlete that, Cyrus has said this many times, the, you know, the ones that really want to get the good number, the best number every time they do a test, and they, they're really impacted by that. You have to work really hard to tell a story outside of that mm-hmm. as to why it's not so important mm-hmm. and you can still perform um, under pressure when it really counts. But I, I, I do see that, that in, in many ways you don't want the, the test to be that, but sometimes it just is. It is this thing that is going to sometimes um, lower the confidence in themselves. So you just have to yeah. work really hard to hey, And that's to why I'm, that. I'm super cautious of putting tests close to races for that reason. Because mm-hmm. if you have a test a week out from a race and an athlete, yeah, goes goes a lot worse than expected or, yeah, can't complete the test or is even if it's a, yeah, if it's they're doing a good number but they know that in this, say, they're preparing for a time trial and they know in the time trial to get a, a medal at national championships, for example, they're going to have to average 380 watts for half an hour and they do a... 20 minute test and they do 370 watts and in their head then they're thinking I can't get a podium in this race that's it that's done and like it's you have to be I think really cautious of when you're setting these tests because that kind of thing is gonna gonna really impact a rider's confidence and also what they think of their own ability to get a result in their the actual goal which is obviously the race or the event that they're targeting. Yeah, and then it's similar to these um, form finder types of rides that you may do close to an event as well, where you're set, sending off somebody to do max efforts, whatever um, durations they are. But this is probably the best time to to raise it. And I don't know if Cyrus, if you you know this idea of like you never want to do your best results in in outside of a bike race. You're always saving it. And there seems to be this idea that pro cyclists don't like testing. They don't test in season and they always are saving energy, effort, motivation, everything for the races when it counts. Yeah, um, there there is definitely that. And it's sort of what I was talking about earlier with the motivation well in that, yeah, in general, not even just testing. I know a lot of pros don't like doing maximal efforts, like don't like going super, super hard in training. They want to save that super super hard effort for in a race but i think you would still find the majority of people have done their best 20 minutes in a 20 minute test just Mm -hmm. because you're preparing yeah you're you're pacing well for it you're preparing well for it maybe they might do i think a lot of cases you would find that they're doing those maybe in an uphill time trial in a race scenario like that um would probably be their best ever because then they've got the added motivation of this is also a race. But the yeah, the majority, I know mine personally, my best five minutes and my best 20 minutes, even though I was, yeah, best best for the year was the other day in Norway and I had done those kind of tests this year. But coming mm-hmm. off a break, like starting training, I had, um, I had done those tests knowing that they wouldn't be good. And I think... A bit of athlete experience comes into that just being prepared to see numbers that you're not happy with in a test and being okay with that. But, yeah, this was coming off my my break last year. I'd done three weeks of riding at the start of the season, thought right now I'll do some tests so I can decide where I'm going to do my efforts at. 
And then, yeah, those were were my PBs still up until this race last week where I was exceeding those, but still my best results ever are tests that I've done when I know I'm in good good form and done all the the preparation for them um, in terms of just having a a day or two easy before and then caffeinating up for them, Uh, yeah, being properly prepared, properly paced, and they're still the best numbers. And I know most athletes I've spoken with is the same. They'll do their, their best numbers in a test scenario still. Four. Or after, or after you ride 120 TSS every single day for six weeks, yeah. that's the best. <laughs> yeah, that that was definitely. <laughs> if I had have done a test straight after that, I don't think I would would have had the nicest <laughs> nicest results. But yeah, I think the majority it's it's a, a pacing thing, and yeah, in in race scenarios, you rarely have a hill that's exactly 20 minutes long that you're doing that kind of effort for as well. Is is another factor. One thing. I just want to touch on it real quick about what to do when, as a coach, when your athlete has the less than stellar results or what was going to be expected. I think it's in, it's an interesting conversation just in the sense that like your job as a coach is to be an advocate for this athlete's performance, right? And advocate for the af- athlete. And as the coach, your ability to improve their performance and advocate for them is going to be improved the better you understand reality but there's this conflict there where if your athlete is understanding reality completely then that might reduce their ability to progress and so in the case of of a bad test with the athlete you might as the coach there's that conflict of i need to understand reality and it's important to understand reality as it is to my best of my ability. But at the same time, my athlete doesn't need to understand reality because understanding reality right now, if this is reality, is not going to help them progress. Yeah. So again, that's getting into like underlying theory and kind of epistemology of the of the situation. And but Cyrus, you you nailed it when you're like. It's not a race. I went on a big tangent to basically describe the outcome of of something that is could really help settle an athlete's nerves. Yeah, and just saying, don't worry about it. It's not a race, and that is can can be uh, immeasurable and it, and its benefits of how you frame that for the athlete. Yeah, and you do have to be careful not to go too far as well in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm definitely I with my testing now lean a lot towards that thing and have to make sure that I'm still putting in the maximal effort. So that's the other thing is you you do want a little bit of nerves on the athlete's part and a little bit mm-hmm. of yeah. okay this is exactly. this is a big thing. So it is yeah it it can it's can balanced ways, like so, anything yeah, right exactly. Right. So I think that's yeah where as a coach it just comes into knowing your athlete having that relationship. And knowing, okay, this athlete is at risk of putting too much pressure on it and, yeah, damaging their confidence if they underperform, whereas this other athlete I work with is at risk of just getting through it and not really giving it everything. So, they're things you have to weigh up. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Last bit of the testing um, episodes here is the evaluation of test data this is actually a good topic to 
end on because it's also kind of a rehashing. It's almost a conclusion statement for this whole long conversation that we've been having. And this is going to get into developing an athlete profile. And this is something we've kind of touched on in past episodes, but this is this digging into it here is again more general because I think a lot of coaches out there might when I think of athlete profile they might think of a power profile but there's a lot more to build with an athlete profile than other than just how they do in a five second versus a 20 minute test so this I think this will be helpful for people to kind of hear and and take in as terms of just kind of a broad um, general approach to athlete profiling. So first thing is you want to select tests that measure specific parameters uh, most closely related to the physical characteristics of the sport. And you want these tests to answer specific questions. So we've already rehashed or we've already hashed that out. The, The second thing is, is choose valid and reliable tests to measure these parameters and arrange the testing battery in an appropriate order with sufficient rest rest between tests. Um, third thing here is the determine the smallest worthwhile change for the test and compare to the population uh, or the population data. So we can definitely think of that in terms of Coggin and Hunter's approach to things with their um, with their power profiling chart. The, and the last thing is, you know, using the results of the test in a meaningful way. And this is, you know, all about the applied and, and again, getting back to the purpose and why we test it's for the athlete. So if you're getting tests, test results, those have a cost. But, and if you're not using those test results to further the athlete or you don't think it will be used to further the athlete, then you have to question why you are collecting the data. But if you are going to use the test results in a meaningful way, you are identifying strengths and weaknesses. And once you've identified those strengths and weaknesses, you would be designing your training program with those strengths and weaknesses in mind. And so um, I think I'm going to conclude this whole spiel with that. Hopefully people have gotten something, some, some interesting tidbits out of it and had some new considerations. And hopefully there's a lot of approved ability in testing. But I don't know if you guys have anything to say on the overall uh, test, overall scheme or within the developing the athlete profile uh, more specifically but yeah I open it to you guys I think you covered that pretty well I think the main takeaway for me there is yeah, if you're going to be giving tests you really want to be able to justify why they're there and make sure that they're going to be the, the most beneficial to what you're trying to achieve so th- there's obviously a lot of costs at play for both the athlete and the coach and you want to look at these and weigh up whether the testing is going to be worthwhile and when when it's going to be most beneficial Mm -hmm. damien final thoughts um 
it's been an interesting look at testing, a, a lot kind of deeper than I've thought about. It's for probably more formalizing ideas that I already had. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's just there's a lot more to it if you want to do it properly. Yep. And considering um, every sort of part of it at least once if you're like a coach, like, uh, you know, hopefully, like you said, if I load these in things into my brain, they'll be there as reference points mm-hmm. when I'm looking at things and changes that I want to make. Um, but testing is something that is super important and uh, done right. It helps you. Done wrong, it helps no one. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So it, it's 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 important just to get right, pretty much. Yeah, and and if I was going to be completely transparent on this topic here, to speak to your point there, Damien, every time I revisit the references I have for, for this topic, and I've been. Uh, reading and presenting and writing blogs on this. I've actually written two blogs on this. We'll probably post it in the show notes. Um, But I wrote them back in 2012. But, you know, going back and refreshing myself on the material, there was a number of places where my heart just kind of sank because I was like, oh, I I forgot about that, right? So even, even taking a course... Uh, that had that textbook in it and or or revisiting it and using it as a reference for multiple um, articles that I've written. You could still go back and read the source material and be like, oh, I can do better in that, in that situation. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's good to have a, the better grasp that you have of that underlying theory for uh, testing athletes. The the more it will come into your practice and the easier uh, and better your practice will be, I think. Yeah, it's it's definitely an eye-opening type of journey to, to, to dive into it because, it, yeah, it, it gets into a lot of things. It gets into physiology, psychology, philosophy, um, all of the, a lot of ologies. <laughs> so a lot of things to consider when you get into it. Yeah, and definitely part of the basics that you would want to be across if you're in any part of this, if you're the athlete, the coach, mm-hmm. the researcher or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think we've covered it well. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to diving into some other specific tests yep. uh, at, at a later date. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's finish it there. Yep. Uh, thanks, Jason, for putting that together. Yeah, no worries. Happy to do it. Uh, thanks, Cyrus, for your comments. No problems. Let's just wrap it up here. If you want to find out when we release episodes and when the weekly call is scheduled, you can do that by following our Twitter or Instagram accounts. On Twitter, we're Cycling Club Pod, and on Instagram, we're Cycling Performance Club. But that's all we have this week. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Yep. Good one, guys. See ya. Yep.